Hey, Tim, how's it going? Good afternoon, Mr. Daniel. How are you? I'm doing well. We have a unique podcast today where I know I'm excited. Uh, you're a co host, so that's fun. You've been on the podcast a lot, but you've never yep. hosted with us. Yep. So trying new things. Hopefully it goes okay. <laughs> yeah, no, we're excited. Um, so we're, we have a fun episode ahead of us today. We're going to talk about prior authorization. The struggle is real. So, um, yeah, I figure we probably have like the two like leading experts in prior auth on the call today. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to, to get Dr. Kim involved and talk through what he's doing in his space and, and uh, see where things go. Cool. Well, I'll jump in with introductions here. I uh, get to introduce our first and only guest today. Uh, so formerly an assistant professor at the University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. Hope I got that pronounced correctly. And then MD from Cornell University Medical College. Um, this person is extremely passionate about prior authorizations and the hurdles and working through the manual workflows to make it better, uh, and is currently the co-founder and current CEO of Voluware. Um, if you looked at their LinkedIn, it says passionate about prior authorizations. Excited to have you here, Dr. Steve Kim. Yeah, thank you, Daniel and Tim, for having me on. I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to the opportunity to share some of my own personal experiences and some protect perspectives around prior authorizations. Cool. Well, I'll get us started. And I know you all have probably spoken about prior auths a lot in the past, but for folks who I'm going to start us out with a layup, you know, I think yesterday was the beginning of uh, the NBA season for anybody trying to figure out where we're at. Uh, so we'll start out with a layup. Um, prior auths or prior authorizations, what are they and why are we talking about them here today? Let either of you take that one. Dr. Kim, I'll go ahead and let you go and then I'll fill in if needed. Yeah, certainly for, for those who may not be familiar with kind of the ins and outs of insurances, I, I tell my family members and friends that a prior auth really think of it almost like a permission slip. So, you know, my background is a little bit unusual in the fact that I'm a pediatric surgeon and became super passionate about prior authorizations because of the impact it was having on my own patients in my practice. And so anytime uh, in the case for many of my patients that I wanted to treat a patient with, you know, ordering a medication performing a surgery, you know, getting a CT scan or even seeing them, like either myself or my team would have to fill out a permission slip. Um, and back when we first started looking at this problem, it was literally on fax forms and still largely is to in, in some certain places to fill out a, a fax form, right? So I had to get from the insurance company uh, permission to go ahead and do a service ahead of time. And really what's encapsulated in that is that the who, uh, the what I want to do, the why, uh, the where, and the, and the when. And so um, these are things that um, many of us as physicians and providers get very frustrated that we have the insurance company kind of um, asking us to uh, request permission after many, many, many years of training uh, to go ahead and treat patients, right? So, and there are other impacts that are involved with uh, prior authorizations when it comes to kind of the financial ramifications. So I'm sure with Tim and, and you and the rest of the team are, are more than intimately familiar with some of the financial ramifications where, uh, you know, there's non-payment for things that aren't appropriately prior authorized ahead of time. Yep. Yeah. Just to historically, it was an attempt by insurance companies to to you know help control rising Medicare cost or medical costs. Pardon me. Over time, and it's it's while there could be arguable value in having prioritization some in some instances, it's it's kind of taken on a life of its own in a lot of cases, unfortunately. And the payers are requiring more and more authorization for certain procedures, and it it does get very complex quite very quickly, unfortunately. 
Yeah, and just to kind of uh, you know add on to that from a provider perspective, is it really does impact care. Um, yeah. uh, and I'm certainly not alone in this. Uh, I'm not sure if you're all familiar with the American Medical Association. They put out a several number, of, a couple of surveys, surveying physicians about their um, you know their thoughts on prior authorizations. Last one came out in 2021, and. You know, 90% of physicians feel like um, the burdens associated with prior auth are either extremely excessive or high. Um, you know, 84% have said like their patients have not uh, gotten the care and they've abandoned care because of these requirements are happening. And um, for me personally, one of the reasons I got into this was the fact that, you know, um, I've had several patients that are just seared into my memory uh, where I feel like uh, some really horrible outcomes have happened related to prior authorizations. And so, and that kind of correlates with the survey. I think a third of physicians have said they've had patients really negatively impacted. So, you know, not only is it, uh, you know, something as a provider that really, um, you know, interferes with the timeliness of care and, and even the care that we're, we're deciding to, to provide. It's um, just a lot of the work that goes into even managing prior authorizations just to get to see patients is, is quite enormous. And so, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's, it's a, it's a major, major uh, challenge for many of us in, in practice. Mm -hmm. Maybe to ask a question, I know we've mentioned payers here. Um, I think payers, like you have government and, and commercial, and maybe just, and Tim, I'll, I'll give this question to you just to start, just like with CMS, there's new rules. Um, like what does the landscape look like right now as far as like the, the different payers and the different like commercial versus government for this? Yeah, so CMS in a lot of ways, they, they typically are the first ones to try something new and then your managed care commercial type payers are going to be the ones to follow suit based off of what CMS does. Uh, with some of the new rules we're looking at specifically with like advantage care plans, you have, uh, they're, they're trying to make things a little easier from like the, uh, uh, if you authorize a service that say goes over, um, you know, multiple uh, visits or multiple dates of service, they're trying to, to make that be the same authorization. They're also trying to make things a little easier from like, if you transition from one advantage product to another, you know, you have kind of a, a gap in time to where the authorization could carry over for you to start over. So you're not having to start from scratch. So they're, they're, I think CMS is trying to experiment with a few things to kind of, you know, resolve some of this burden for not only the healthcare systems, but providers. Um, but it's, it's, you know, a little early on to see how things are going to go. Um, you know, if it does work, there could be some potential for how the managed care and commercial payers kind of follow suit. Um, but like I said, it's it's very early on and still very, still very much experimental in terms of what they're doing. I think uh, a lot of us are waiting with bated breath, you know, this is something <laughs> that uh, I yeah. think the CMS has been looking to try to establish, you know, kind of reform around prior authorizations for yeah. the past few years. Um, there was a public commentary session for kind of the proposed final rule earlier this year. And so I think the word on the street is should be coming out um, anytime now. Um, and to Tim's point, you know, things are oftentimes led by CMS when it comes to Medicare Advantage and Medicaid. And, um, you know, certainly we're knee deep in the, kind of all the things that are going on with prior authorizations. And so part of it, as Tim said, is just better visibility into kind of what patients uh, will be able to see about prior authorizations, the exchange of info from payer to payer. And then kind of the meat of what I'm looking forward to and a lot of us are looking forward to is kind of what falls out and sticks when it comes to the actual details of transitioning more to electronic prior authorization workflows. So there's a component called PAR-D, um, uh, which is you know prior authorization requirements, documentation decisions. And a lot of the initiatives that are ongoing in the discussions are really making uh, payers, uh, uh, make them uh, make APIs or application programming interfaces available to really kind of grease the wheels towards uh, electronic uh, prior authorizations. And so 
Um, I'll, I'll maybe just, if you guys are okay, I'll just talk maybe for the benefit of your listeners, I'll just touch on some of the, you know, key highlights of, from my perspective Absolutely. is, you know, one, first and foremost, you know, for many of us who have to deal prior authorization, we don't even know sometimes what, what requires a prior authorization. So the mm -hmm. first part is, you know, CRD or coverage requirements discovery. So, you know, the need for payers to tell us, okay, for this service, Dr. Kim, you actually do need to get a prior authorization. So that's one component that everybody's looking forward to. Another one is just understanding what the informational and documentation requirements are. They call it, you know, DTR, which is documentation templates and rules. So not only do you need an auth, but like, you know, where do you need to go? And then what information can we expect to have to provide um, to, to kind of make that authorization available? And there's a lot of details, as you can imagine, because this really boils down to a lot of the clinical details about what, um, what you're requesting for medical necessity. And the last and the biggest hurdle, and this is probably where we've been spending most of our time as an organization, is really how do we start facilitating the exchange uh, seamlessly with everybody's EMRs and, and practice management systems back and forth, right? Um, and so, you know, there's a big bucket called prior authorization support or PAS. And this is how do you get all the data, you know, bytes from, you know, various different electronic medical records uh, to the appropriate formats and to the, you know, insurance side so they can do what they need to do and then have that flow back. And so, much of this is still going to ride on the, the rails of something called X12278 uh, HIPAA standards. Um, it's been out there for a long time, but for those of us who've been working on this for over a decade, it's, uh, you know, I think one of the challenges there is it hasn't really fully met the needs of some of the workflows that are, are encompassed with prior authorization. So we're all looking to see kind of what the guidance will be around that. So the, the beauty here is that we're going to kind of force folks to start working, the plan to start working on APIs to make this more available. And I think, you know, the target date is January 2026. Um, more details around it, but we're all curious to see. Uh, there's been a lot of debate and discussion is kind of some of um, the additional rules uh, that they want to hold uh, payers to. So um, clarity around denial reasons, like, you know, sometimes it's really hard to find out why payers are denying things because they kind of have their encoded messages and yep. it's difficult to know how to respond to that. Um, another piece that's been hotly debated is, you know, timeliness, right? So um, the proposed rule that they put out there was 72 hours for something that's urgent, um, seven calendar days for something that's routine. I know various different states have their own rules already around that. So there's a lot of stuff that I think we're, we're all kind of uh, uh, um, waiting, uh, you know, with ca cautious optimism as to kind of what those rulings are. Mm -hmm. well, I very much agree. What do you think about like, um, uh, gold carding and and it's, it's somewhat of a newer approach with payers and everything to you know for for those organizations that do a very good job and abiding by authorization policies with payers and everything you know do you think that's going to help serve uh you know your kind of your goals and what you're looking to do or what are your thoughts on that yeah i mean certainly there's been a lot of discussion about gold carding over the past couple of years and um and for those who may not be as familiar with gold carding i, I kind of tell people it's kind of analogous to get, kind of getting a tsa pre-check you know as yeah. a doctor if if I have a certain level of approvals over a historical period of time for a specific service for a specific payer that I should not have to do an authorization, that, you know, this has been something that's been debated in many state legislatures as part of legislation, but Texas, the state of Texas actually passed this into law a couple of uh, years ago and actually went into effect um, last October. So it's been live for about a year. Um, some of the questions around the practical implementation that I have with gold carding initiatives, albeit as a provider, I would love to say that I don't have to do authorizations for things, mm -hmm. is how do you actually start accounting and auditing for that, right? So yeah. if you have to historically have a, you know, for Texas, it's a six month look back window. 
for by provider, for a specific payer, by specific service codes to get to a, you know, a historical, you know, 90% threshold, um, you know, if that's incredibly difficult to kind of get to, right, and, and, and account for. Um, because the practical reality for a lot of these authorization workloads that are being today, a vast majority are being done outside of the electronic health record. And these are all manual. And when things are manual, no one keeps tabs or track. You know, the first thing when I ask my office manager, what are we doing with prior authorizations? How long are they taking to turn around? And my office manager just shrugged and pointed to a pile of fax forms and saying, I don't know, Dr. Kim, right? So, so that's really, I know in concept, it really sounds alluring. And a lot of um, states have been looking at this as legislation, but there comes a little bit of, uh, you know, where the rubber hits the road of how do you actually account for that? And yes. I was actually in Texas last week talking to a large multi-specialty group and talking to the chief medical officer. And I asked him point blank, has this made a difference? And he's like, I haven't seen a lick because it's impossible to really understand, you know, Dr. Kim for the past six months for Cigna for a specific CT scan got more than 90% threshold, so he shouldn't have to do that. It's incredibly difficult to administer. Um, and so those are some of the challenges, you know, really kind of at this point um, up to the plans to provide that information. And I will tell you that when plans and how they operate and delegate out risk, I don't know if they clearly know all these answers right now. So. Um, so there's a practical component around the workflows that I would say. Now, having said that, you know, what we're doing as a company is actually um, uh, centralizing, standardizing, and kind of automating all the submissions and the retrieval. So that is, in fact, data that we do have available in terms of looking at approval rates and also denial rates, right, by provider, by payer, by specific service codes. And so mm -hmm. I think, once again, uh, alluring from a policy perspective, but you know, it always comes down to, you know, how does this actually get implemented in practical reality? And so there's still a lot of work to be done there. Yep, and I think uh, a lot of the success for providers that do hit that threshold is gonna be because of the, the, the support infrastructure you either have within your organization or through tools like Voluware um, to, to make that happen over time, just because you're able to have kind of a higher success rate in getting authorizations and everything. So uh, very, very important from an operational perspective to have those types of strategies in place as your your performing services. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, please. I have another question. I don't want to steer us in a different direction quite yet. <laughs> no, no, and you know, you know, absolutely. I think a lot of kind of what we've learned over the past decade of doing prior off work is really the workflows really matter, right? Yes. And so, how do we operationalize what becomes legislation? Um, sometimes the policy folks kind of don't necessarily dive all the way deep down into practical implementation. I guess the No Surprises Act is probably a good example of that, um, of the, the difference of quelling and things that can happen. So, mm -hmm. but yeah. Maybe just uh, harp on something. I think we've talked about gold carding, like that was maybe Texas specific. And Dr. Kim, I think you mentioned there were some differences maybe across states. What does that look like? Like just thinking like the, the nationwide and you're talking about standardization. Does that really work when thinking that there's like different Medicaid programs and managed Medicaid programs maybe dealing with this differently? Yeah, no, that's a great fundamental question, right? Because the way, you know, insurance works is the combination both of federal uh, for certain kind of, uh, uh, um, you know, insurances as well as the state-based regulation, right? So um, you get into this picture where things can be very different state by state. Uh, and so it adds another layer of complexity in trying to manage all the different rules, especially for some of the organizations we work with, large health systems that are you know, seeing patients that have insurances that are based in different states due to their employer. Like, how do you manage all that, right? So um, there's an added layer of complexity of just 
keeping up with from a compliance standpoint of okay what do we have to do um, in terms of being compliant with the regulations and then you layer on top of that things like ERISA plans right or exempted from a lot of these rules uh, and so it does add another layer of complexity in terms of kind of um, uh, not having a fully standardized a set of rules to operate by I think um, so that that you know that does pose some additional questions right of how we're going to manage that um, and kind of with our additional kind of operational workflows that we have to do for prior off. So how would Voluware um, tackle something like that uh, with say a large healthcare organization that crosses state lines and you have multiple so now, now you are dealing with Arkansas Medicaid versus Texas Medicaid or vice versa. Yeah. Yeah, I know we work with organizations that, you know, see patients that have all sorts of different, uh, you know, state-based um, or state-headquartered um, plans. Like, you know, here in California, we see patients that are from Blue Cross Blue Shield, Illinois, and Texas, et cetera. So, you know, our approach has really been fundamentally in when we start managing and looking at how to address prior authorizations, it's a very workflow-centric approach. And so we do have the capability to manage all that, right? All the fragmentation, all the different workflows that are required and can set rules accordingly um, uh, with, you know, in discussion and coordination with our clients is how they want to um, have rules to operate that. So if there's a specific set of rules that they're always encountering for a set of services uh, because Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas is requiring different things, we have the ability to kind of adjust that and add that into kind of our custom workflows that we build for people and, and maintain that right alongside their national plans, their Blue Shields of California plans, et cetera. Yep. So um, that's kind of how our approach has been. Um, uh, you know, uh, our, our approach has been born out of just the super fragmentation uh, that we see with prior authorization workflows. And, and so we start from the bottom, which is the workflows. What do people have to do to get their authorizations uh, submitted and approved so that uh, a patient can get kind of taken care of? Um, and so what we do is we build kind of very powerful user-centric, um, you know, workflow automations around that. So. Um, part of the challenge here is that everybody wants and desires a standard way to do authorizations. It's just it's just not kind of reality right now. Um, and so instead of trying to hope for that, um, we just you know started working a decade ago and building automations to help kind of organize the madness and then begin to automate it. So pretty cool. Very interesting. Cool. Well, I'm going to take us to a break here. I think we've highlighted some of the uniqueness and challenges of prior auth, and we'll jump back in after a break to talk about what Voluware is doing. And Tim can give some operational uh, insight as well, just uh, how to deal with it at a health system level. At Voluware, we help healthcare organizations streamline prior authorization submissions with one platform, helping you simplify, connect, integrate, and automate each part of the process. We take your pre-existing workflow and truly automate it, including the submission and verification process. The best part? Voluware automates your prior authorization processes for all of your payers, specialties, and service lines, not just some of them. Valor is built around you. Learn more at voluware.com. That's voluware.com. And we're back. Uh, so we're going to move into this next section. As previously highlighted, we'll talk about um, all sorts of things in the prior auth space. Tim, you want to start us out? Yeah, Dr. Kim, I'd love to hear about uh, you know how Voluware kind of got off the ground and, and what Voluware does for a lot of the providers and customers that they have. And you know, feel free. 
Yeah, um, thank you. Um, uh, and so, you know, Volueware is a bit of an accident. I think I alluded to the fact that, you know, my, my prior um, uh, profession was that as a pediatric surgeon. I practiced at a children's hospital here in Southern California. And really, when I first started practicing over a decade ago, I got very frustrated with the fact that my patients were having delays, not getting their care. It was really impacting uh, my patient's care. And I started understanding more and more about the impact that it was having on you know, my team, my staff, and, and our finances. And so that was really born, it was born out of necessity. Um, I'm not sure how familiar um, maybe your, your, your uh, you know, listeners are with kind of um, Medi-Cal in California, where we've got a, a certain brand of, uh, of prior authorizations that we dealt with. But you know, what we first started out seeing, when I started asking my office manager what the problem was prior authorization, I still distinctly remember pulling out a three ring binder that thick with a whole bunch of fax forms that people had to fill out for authorization, these permission slips as I call them. And then they said, hey, Dr. Kim, we also have to go to three dozen different websites to manually type information back in. So that was really um, the birth of the frustration and anger uh, around prior authorizations. And it really caused me to kind of look out in the landscape and there was nothing out there. And so this was out of necessity, right? We had to build something for my own team. And so what came from that was, you know, Voluor is a company and a platform called Valor that we kind of utilized to help automate uh, prior authorization workflows. And so Valor is a cloud-based solution bi-directionally integrates with you know EHRs and practice management systems and and what Valor offers is one single interface to help centralize standardize and automate today's prior authorization submission workflows um, which is I think uh, the most challenging of all uh, when it comes to prior authorizations sorry a phone call um, and so that's uh, the the platform that we work with uh, some of the distinguishing things that we've been really working on over the past several years is that for my own practice, it wasn't good enough just to have one solution to deal with a few of the payers. We wanted something that's comprehensive. So we wanted one place to go to all the different payers that we would have to deal with and across all the different service lines, right? So my office staff said, hey, Dr. Kim, we got to do surgical authorizations. we got to do medication authorizations. we got to do imaging. Um, and so that was really the standard that was put forth, and that's what we've been working on building. So we really, um, looking back over the past 10 years, have built a platform that covers um, all payers, all service lines. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, we're up to over 75 different payer websites and over 1,000 different fax ones in one place. Um, awesome. We work with primarily academic medical centers, health systems, but also large ambulatory practices. Uh, and helping to really um, make prior authorizations much more manageable and much more efficient. Um, and so that's kind of uh, a little bit about what I've been doing for the past 10 years and, and more specifically, uh, you know, solely focused on over the past few years. So I'd be very interested in what type of data you capture in terms of like just overall performance. Like, how, you know, do, are you seeing quicker turnaround times with Cigna and longer turnaround times with Blue Cross or vice versa, whatever it might be? And are, are you giving any of that information back to your to your customers to then have the managed care team go out and help with negotiations and such? Absolutely, um, absolutely. So one, one of the things that happened because these um, submission workflows, like a vast majority, if not most of them are manual, they mm -hmm. go kind of into a black box and you don't have that data, right? I was asking my office manager what happens with all these authorizations, she really couldn't tell me. So the beauty of having that go through a single platform is you get all that rich data, right? Both on Pair behaviors. So, how long, to your point exactly, how long are things taking for a turnaround? What are their denial and approval rates? What percentage are getting redirected, um, which are going to peer to peer? So, all that rich data that I wanted to kind of figure out what was going on, like it is now available. We're actually providing that to our clients 
uh, as reporting so that they can actually exactly like you said um, uh, make that available to their managed care contracting teams to kind of um, you know take to the JOC meetings right yes. and advocate for for change so in addition to all those payer um, behavioral metrics I think the other thing that is really incredibly important is understanding staff right your staff and kind of what is the throughput what is where are the challenges where where do you need to start looking at load balancing right if you're getting behind and those are also company metrics that we have in terms of staff productivity uh, down to individual staff members teams um, and you know kind of even down to how long they're taking to submit um, these are all relevant data points that are helpful practically in terms of optimizing so an example classic example is you know some organizations will choose to wait for authorizations first before they'll schedule a service and you know based on some of the data we've had clients that said hey look on average this is how long a particular payer has taken why are we waiting 14 business days for this mri schedule let's do this a lot quicker right and so um so that's part of the power of harnessing what is otherwise um you know slipping through your fingers outside the ehr in terms of what things are what things are happening with payers and to have it available to help optimize. And so that's been a lot of what we've been focusing on recently with many of our clients. Mm-hmm. I, I'm always, I always chuckle when I see a payer policy that has 14 day turnaround for an MRI authorization, but then you go back and look at the data and you see that 98% of the time it's taking two days uh, to get back. And so what the, my first question is, why are we not renegotiating our, our contract here? Yeah, or very interestingly, if you see those mandates, like here in California, we've got the 14-day um, requirements for the Department of Managed Healthcare, you'll see um, decisions being rendered on the 13th day every time. Yep. <laughs> so there's a lot of different things that can happen um, mm-hmm. that I think you know, data data, and having transparent data to go to the table is always, I think, um, uh, I find very helpful, right? Um, instead of just uh, pointing fingers to say, hey, this is what we're seeing. So. Have you seen um, with, with your your clientele and and, and with all the improvements you've made with your product, have you seen any payers come back and start to eliminate any type of PA requirements or or uh, as a result of you working or, or making the process easier? Yeah, we've certainly seen actually active engagement uh, uh, from time to time, depending on the payer, um, by having that data available. Uh, you know, the payers, depending on uh, some of them are are interested in working together to say let's eliminate what doesn't make sense for because they, they have to pay for managing authorizations and yes. so uh, those are aspects that we actually you know want to promote right where it makes sense for all parties so let's just eliminate authorizations where they don't make any sense and and uh, be able to do that that's something that we want to help facilitate the issue for the payer sometimes is they still want documentation and a track record of what was being requested and so you know, they still need that information to come across. And so, you know, but, um, you know, that's the beauty of what we're doing is we can actually help facilitate that. So they still get that info. But at the end of the day, it's, a, you know, an auto approval or they don't have to do that authorization, et cetera. So, um, but, you know, this is a lot of, I think, where we're seeing uh, payers moving towards uh, in anticipation of the rules that they may be subjected to to, to make APIs available. So we're actually um, working now in pilots with both a national payer and, a regional payer in California to do exactly that with APIs. So, you know, our goal is to streamline this process for everybody. Um, and so, for sure. And maybe the flip the script, Tim, a little bit just on on your perspective, just operationally, when you're thinking about maybe a solution like Voluware, just like the problems that you have, um, what are like the main challenges that folks <laughs> are experiencing today? So. Every payer is going to have different requirements and, and managing that operationally can get very challenging, especially when you don't have a, uh, 
um, at, at the very least, a, a more advanced EHR to to kind of help, you know, bundle or group different types of payers or different patients into different work environments for you. Uh, a lot of that um, also can be related to what is the organization's scheduling policy? Do they schedule before auth or auth before schedule and how that kind of works? I per- personally prefer uh, to schedule before auth and to, then to use your technology to schedule out so far to where you're giving yourself adequate time to secure the authorization. So that's where like the uh, payer policies will become very, very valuable and say, okay, I know I need 10 days. Uh, let's build a decision tree or let's make sure that we are, are looking at no less than 10 days from whenever I'm talking to this patient to get them on the books. So, th- but those things can get very complex over time, especially if you start looking at the different plans underneath each payer. So you can have 10 plans under a single payer and, and each one of those can have different requirements. So that tree uh, to, to schedule certain things becomes very, very complex over time. Uh, that also is why I kind of asked Dr. Kim about the you know, some of the data that you can kind of get back uh, and what you can do with that, because the more data I have, the more I can then turn back around and either impact what I'm doing with decision trees, because I know that I'm, I have a high confidence in, in securing this in, in a shorter time than what the payer policy may call for, or I can go back and renegotiate my contract and say, listen, XYZ payer, I know that your policy says this, but we, this is not what you're doing in practice. And so we want to make sure that we're better taking care of our patients by by abiding by what you practice is not necessarily your policy, which is essentially a CYA, for lack of a better way to put it. Um, so that that's kind of at a high level what I would do. Staffing is the other big thing. You know, for any large health system, it unfortunately requires an army uh, to secure authorization. So looking at products like Voluware and others to to help take some of the manual work out and reduce your overall overall labor footprint. Um, is going to be very, very vital, um, especially as, as uh, you know, hiring for these jobs gets more and more difficult. Unfortunately, these are typically entry-level jobs with an organization, and that, that's hard to hire for, number one, and then retain number two. Um, so the more technology or the more pathways you have to kind of secure this stuff is going to be very helpful. Yeah, I'd be curious. Um Dr. Kim, I know we talked about like the automation and whatnot, but is there any like specific pieces of automation that you would want to make sure that our listeners are knowing about? I know AI and machine learning are like the two like huge topics out there, but just um, anything specific that Voluware like really keys in on addressing. Yeah. And one thing that goes back to what I mentioned earlier about that, we we really kind of build the custom solutions around the workflow that indiv- you know organizations have. And Believe me, that differs from different teams, right? Even under the same roof, whether it's a diagnostic imaging team versus a surgery team. And so um, I know there's been a lot of talk and in, in interest in AI machine learning over the past couple of years, but you know, our approach has always been, let's look at the workflows first and then apply you know, our own proprietary powerful you know, workflow automation technology to help automate as much as we can, right? And so that's been our fundamental approach. Um, and it's been the one that has worked um, uh, for us and for our clients. Uh, I just don't, I'm, I'm a firm, ardent believer in technology, believe me, but I just don't think it's quite ready uh, for a lot of what we, people are trying to do with AI and machine learning. And there are a couple of different principles, I think, why is, to Tim's point, um, a lot of these algorithms that are underlying the, the technology require 
relatively standard information being done the same way. Uh, and if there's anything that describes prior authorization that's non-standard, and so it becomes incredibly difficult to make sure that we're, you know, we're 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 meeting and achieving a level of accuracy because look, you know, patients' lives kind of depend on authorization, and we don't want to make mistakes around that. So, um, so you know, from from our perspective. Um, you know, we're certainly looking at ways to apply it as it makes sense uh, in terms of the technology base. And so um, what we're doing right now is, is user-centric automation. So any sort of web portal that they would have to typically go out to instead of going out to 30 different websites, that's, you know, the automation that we're building in. There will still be components where people are required uh, around QA process and kind of certain aspects and elements. But, you know, our philosophy is uh, is continuously iterating and building more and more workflow automation as it makes sense for folks. And so that's what we're doing. Um, curiously, when it comes to all this talk about AI and machine learning, you know, there's a lot of talk about these large language models and data sets and, you know, having the need for having human feedback um, and reinforcement. You know, in effect, you know, we, we build this with our users and their input. And so we are getting a really highly cleansed uh, and, and curated data set, um, which actually will, in my opinion, uh, allow us on our roadmap to kind of help better with predictive analytics that make a lot more sense and are more accurate, right? So if you think about all the data that we have going through our system, including the member, the patient, all their info, the provider's facility, all the CPD codes, diagnostic codes, um, and all the questions and documents that are going back and forth, you know, it is um, something that we've already prepped our system and, and the data set for um, machine learning aspects, right? So we want to get to a place where we can provide, um, you know, with fairly high confidence that with all the data that we're getting from the EMR, that this has a, you know, a high likelihood of approval or going through. And so that's uh, that's what we've been working on on our end. Was so the one thing I didn't mention is operationally also making sure that you have the correct clinical information. Uh, when you're submitting for the authorization too. So, you know, staffing and operational process is, is one part of it, but you have to make sure that you have a very good, very compact way to look at what clinical information is A, required by the payer, and then B, if you can go out and source that um, and, and then get that to the payer so you can get the authorization done. Uh, the better you are at that, the less likely you are to have like a peer-to-peer on the other end as well. So. Yeah, and that's a massive part of the problem, right? So, um Back during my academic days, that was my area of interest is like building, you know, evidence-based guidelines for practices and um, uh, it gets very messy. Um, you know, certainly this is where I would say that, you know, one of the things that would be the biggest low-hanging fruit is making sure that payers are putting out what their rules are in a, you know, in a transparent way that people can access. And then from that, we can actually go to doing things to help um, improve clinical documentation. So to Tim's point, if Dr. Kim didn't document something, there's nothing we can do about the authorization, right? And uh, believe me that, you know, that's kind of one of the complaints that we hear a lot from the payers is sometimes, you know, it has to go back and forth because they just don't have all the data that they need to kind of, you know, uh, do what they need to do and, and what they're responsible for doing. So there's a lot of um, gray areas as well in kind of um, clinical practice. What is, what is established accepted guidelines and that can differ from interpretation. So there's a lot of uh, you know, a lot of these fine things that do not get worked worked out over time. So, um, yeah, this is not a this is not a simple challenge. I thought, you know, when I first started, it was like, oh, this can't be that hard. You can make just have everybody fill out a standard form. I went to all the payers, and they said, you know what, uh, no way are we filling out your form. You got you got to fill out our form, right? So, but uh, these are the things I think you learn over a decade's worth of just peeling back the onion on the different levels of complexity. So. 
Well, I find it refreshing that y'all are not necessarily jumping into a large language model just to do it. I feel like I hear it, it a lot. People are just like, oh, AI can solve everything. And it's like, I mean, you're, you're taking uh, the right approach, I think, just uh, take in the data and see what's I, there. Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I'm also uh, very excited about what may, may come from technology, but, you know, I also very practical sense that, you know, uh, it's just not ready for a lot of things that we need and, and kind of with what we're working with today. And so, you know, my, my job and our company's job is to help deliver results today, right? Because patients are depending on it. And so you know, that's been our, our, our approach to things. Uh, we're going to definitely look at things where it might make sense. Um, but, you know, it's uh, not technology in pursuit of a, a use case. It's really starting with the use case and then, and, and then building the right technology around that. So, How does your software handle multiple payers like you can have yep. uh, you know retirement age individuals that have multiple plans just because they're retirement age you can have a kid that's covered by mom and dad on different plans you know and and there are different you know strategies or processes you have to follow for each one of those cases so so how does the the software handle that yeah we're currently able on our end on the valor side to handle secondary insurances and we do actively for clients um uh, one of the things that we have to make sure is that we align it to what the emr handles and what it's capable of handling so we're not accidentally putting in the wrong uh you know insurance information for the wrong um account mm -hmm. um, but from our perspective we do have clients that have secondary insurances that we're actually doing authorizations for both and then also being able to push back into the appropriate places. So, um, you know, there's a lot of some technical work that needs to make sure that it goes to the right places so that it doesn't cause a denial and the headache on the back end. Um, but yeah, that's something that we have capabilities. I think someone asked us recently, can we do more than two or three? And like the answer is yes, but you know, obviously we want to be very careful about the workflows and making sure that we're not causing additional uh, problems or headaches for people in terms of the workflow with the EMR. Yeah, I know we're we... even seeing things like for infusion chemotherapies where like it's split where, you know, the, you know, the infusion part is to one payer, the chemo medication to a different payer. So mm -hmm. it's getting pretty complicated out there. Right. So with uh, mm -hmm. some of these requirements from insurance companies. So. Well, then you have the, the whole recurring series stuff start to consider with chemo or even PTOT yep. where you're coming back from multiple services and that's all built on one yep. encounter. So that gets very, very complex too. Yeah, and those are things that we've run into all these use cases for, um, you know, chemo, recurring services for PTOT, you know, how do we handle the units of services as they count down. Um, so these are all things that we've, um, uh, you know, encountered and, and kind of built uh, workflows around. Uh, so, you know, certainly things that we're familiar with. I know we were talking earlier about the regulatory landscape and just things that are coming down the pipeline. Is there anything that, Dr. Kim, that you're looking forward to with prior auth just in the years ahead? I know. It was kind of a slow burn, the 2026, till maybe some of this stuff comes into effect. But um, just curious if there's anything like on your roadmap that you're you're excited about or want to put on people's radar. Yeah, um, certainly, you know, ahead of what we're all expecting to have happen, which is the migration to APIs, we've already got stuff in production and beta production right now with plans. And, you know, I'm, I'm a surgeon, so I'm pretty impatient. Like, I want things to happen now. And so... Um, we're very excited about some of the work that we're doing with, uh, with health plans that have reached out to us that have APIs available that they want to integrate in and implement into the EMR workflows. And so that's something that we're pretty excited about doing on our end. Um, this goes beyond kind of just the is off required or not, which has been kind of the primary focus of a lot of uh, plans, but really getting down to how do we get the documentation submitted and exchanged across, right? Um, our 
our belief is fundamentally that APIs are the future of how this should all work out. Um, it just makes a lot more sense and has a flexibility and from a cost perspective is a lot more cost efficient. So, um, you know, ahead of the 2026 requirements for just some of the basic elements, we're, we're, we're already working on things. You know, our entire platform is API based and driven. So we've been prepared. And one of the other things that has occurred to us over, you know, doing this for 11 years is that um, part of the challenge with APIs is mapping everything out. Um, every, you know, plan has very different uh, routes for their specific services and the combination of information. And in many ways, looking back, we've been spending all this time mapping out all the various different API routes to get the data back and forth. And so just really working more with um, plans that are ready or interested in, in figuring out ways to get this to become much more automated, right? That's kind of what we all want is to have a seamless and automated, so. Yeah, and just even talking, I know you mentioned that your cloud-based solution and like APIs I think of as like a, in my mind are simple to roll out, but just like for anybody who's listening, it's like, I want to explore this. What is What does that process look like just to roll that out? In terms of rolling out our platform or rolling out APIs? just to uh, Your platform, your just like very high level, just rolling out Valueware, what would that look like? Yeah, so it's a cloud-based solution. So, you know, once again, the requirements uh, are very light when it comes to any sort of specific hardware, uh, you know, uh, because it, it really runs off of, you know, uh, the internet, right? So that's really the hardware requirements. Obviously, we go through all the required security um, vetting uh, required. And then the other part is really integrating in with um, the EMR workflows, right? We know that everybody lives out their EMR workflows, and those are incredibly important. We do not uh, in any way, shape, or form want to displace that. We want to actually mirror what has to be done and then help automate that to make that as seamless as possible. So the other part of it is really understanding for each um, client what their um, IT platform is, either EMR, and then working through the integration plan uh, points uh, to get the data across. And then we spend time with actual user teams scoping their workflows. Like we actually observe their workflows. Um, we've been doing this enough times where we've got a very good sense of kind of, okay, this is what you know, we're gonna encounter and you know, we can make recommendations. And then an organization will pick where do they wanna start, um, which group, what type of payer websites or fax ones they wanna start with and can kind of get that up uh, fairly quickly. I think the long pull sometimes can be the IT integration, just making sure that we're working very closely with uh, our clients' IT teams around that. So, um, yeah, so those are some of the basic, you know, high-level requirements to get started. And because we're a cloud-based system, we've got an enormous amount of flexibility uh, to kind of morph to, you know, whatever situation it is in terms of the types of authorizations that they want to address. And the nice part of it is because every instance is built specifically for a client and on, they're on their own instance, we can rapidly adjust and add and change things um, for a specific client without having to worry about, you know, do, will this impact all the other clients on Valueware? The answer is no, right? So it really is a custom-built system that's built around a, a specific organization need. Very cool. Um, and I know for folks, if you're wanting to check this out more, there is Valueware.com. I think you have a little request the demo button. So for folks that are interested, you definitely should reach out. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and take us to another quick break here, and we'll be right back. Claim Capital is a team of ex-Epic staff focused on preventing denials. Instead of showing what was denied, which is the standard for other solutions available today, Claim Capital pinpoints why claims are denied. By training machine learning models on an organization's claim and remittance data, Claim Capital can identify the causes of denials and recommend changes in EHR build or workflows to prevent them from happening in the future. 
With a completely HIPAA-compliant infrastructure, no software implementations, and a zero-risk pricing structure, organizations can quickly and safely recover lost revenue. All right, we're back for the Wilshire Lab. Um, so let's jump in for a quick question. Um, we don't have any direct questions today uh, about prior auths, and I feel like we've asked a lot, and I'm sure uh, for listeners who want to talk more about prior auths, they can reach out to both of our uh, co-hosts and guests today. But uh, just to round off, uh, what is a major professional accomplishment that you're proud of? Tim, we'll start with you. You might have answered this on a previous podcast, but um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, I never, going through college and everything, I never even saw myself in healthcare to begin with. I was actually getting a, a bachelor's in business administration and um, thought I would follow my father into engineering type work uh, in manufacturing and everything, uh, you know, like he's done. Uh, but as it turns out, during college, um, broke my leg of all things delivering pizzas as my college job and did not want to go back to that once I was able to walk again. And uh, my uh, girlfriend, now wife, uh, was a nurse extern at the hospital we worked at. And I just kind of got into that and built a career at it. So went back and got a, uh, uh, a master's degree in healthcare administration, uh, spent about 17, 18 years with uh, my operational facility I worked with. And then my, my most proud thing to date, I think, is um, transitioning to more of a consulting type role and and really becoming that subject matter expert around uh, you know, all things epic and and access and revenue cycle and things and being able to help not only my own organization that I was at originally, but other organizations uh, kind of improve and optimize things where I can as well. So that's that's been a really neat path for me. And I'm very, very proud of that. What about you, Dr. Kim? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, as someone who kind of got into this profession as a physician to, to help people, it's always been about service and and doing what we can to help people at the end of the day who are having medical issues. And so um, it's not a singular kind of major professional accomplishment, but the, the reward and the joy every day. Um, you know, uh, I look at these authorizations that our team is helping to do as, as someone's mom, someone's, you know, son, someone's child that we're helping. And so to me, there's an immense reward and and helping the hardworking people, because these are some of the hardest working people that you'll see kind of trying to do these authorizations uh, to kind of get the thank yous from them, right? So, you know, just to see the success that they're seeing has been an enormous amount of um, joy to, to myself and our team, and that's kind of how we operate. So, um, you know, I'd say that's, it's a uh, it's service morphing into a different direction uh, to treat patients one at a time. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, because this problem is so big, I think for me, the reward is really being able to help many more, you know, patients out there that are being touched with this problem. So I'd say that was, uh, you know, kind of a, a major accomplishment done in one at a time, one patient at a time to feel one prior authorization at a time. So you think about, you said you were in a, a number of organizations, but each one of those organizations represents thousands of patients. So the, the impact your organization's having is, is very profound. Yeah, yeah no, it's uh, certainly get asked the question a lot. Well, don't you miss, you know, treating patients still? I tell people I still treat patients. It's just in a different way, right? Yeah. Um, because the frustrating part is that there's so many other providers out there like myself who are trying to, you know, you know train for many years to do what we you think is right and, and best interest of patients and just the frustrations around that. So um, so there's a lot of just, you know, personal gratification, satisfaction of being able to help uh, as many people as I can. And, you know, I think we're out there to, you know, try to help as many folks as possible with uh, with prior authorizations. As you mentioned, uh, I mean, there's a lot of thankless jobs and thank you for all the people who do that. So and if you're listening and involved in that, uh, it's really cool. Um, we'll go ahead and wrap up today. Um, just uh, 
remind our listeners, this is season two, episode 19. It's crazy. We're already here. Episode 19, prior authorization, the struggle is real. I'll let you all decide if struggle is manageable or not. And maybe we've given you some solutions, but uh, Tim, thanks for co-hosting today. Anyway, we threw you on kind of um, spur of the moment here uh, for as a prior auth expert, but for folks that want to reach out, um, Dr. Kim, just to reach out to you, maybe directly or to company, what's the best way to do that? Um, yeah, they certainly can uh, reach me by email. It's uh, steve.kim.md at voluware, V-O-L-U-W-A-R-E.com. Um, people can also find me on LinkedIn, uh, Steve Kim at Voluware, if they want to uh, kind of uh, learn more about what we're doing, or or they can, I'm also on Twitter, or X as they call it now, so it's at Steve S. Uh, Kim as the handle. So um, always interested in talking to people who've got questions around it, uh, so don't be shy about reaching out to us. I'm happy to see uh, if there are opportunities to help educate and or help uh, when it comes to prior off. And thank you both Tim and Daniel for, uh, you know, providing the opportunity for me to share some, some of my experiences and perspectives on uh, on this problem. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you both. Really appreciate it. All right, Tim, over to you. You want to you want to let us out? Yeah, yeah. So uh, again, Dr. Kim, thank you for your time today. And and uh, Voluware seems to be like a fantastic product. So uh, very much looking forward to kind of following you and seeing where things go in the next few years. Um, and uh, outside of that, uh, it's uh, to our listeners. Thank you very much for your time today and uh, hope to see you again next time. If you liked today's episode, continue to join Wilshire Wednesdays. You can follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan underscore Wilshire. Daniel can be followed at Daniel underscore TWG. Wilshire Group at TWG Health. On Facebook at the Wilshire Group or on Instagram at Wilshire IT Revcast. Remember, if you prefer to watch, come check us out at the Wilshire IT Revcast YouTube channel. If you have an inquiry, want to share your thoughts or get additional information on today's episode, email us at Wilshire Podcast at the Wilshire Group. The best way to support this podcast is to review, rate, and subscribe. See you next time. Bye-bye. The Wilshire IT Revcast is hosted, produced, and engineered by Evan Martin and Daniel Bianchini. It is executive produced by Gretchen Case, Hank Smither, and Spencer Thielman. The Wilshire Group. Experience you can trust. Results you can count on.